Welcome to the podcast, In and Through Exist, to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. I'm Tim. And I'm Marshall. What's up, Marshall? Not a whole lot. Snowing like crazy outside. You love that. Oh, man. We had summer weather like three days ago, <laughs> and then we got snow again. Ayla was Ayla was devastated this morning when like the tulips and some of the flowers that have popped up in our garden had snow all over them she, she was on the verge of tears my flowers my flowers how did she know that that was going to ruin them i don't know the fact like I, i'm not sure hmm maybe just that they were covered in snow maybe it's cute it's cute except it's i feel the same mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. all right today we get into an interesting time We do. Controversial time. Definitely. Even now. Sure. Um, The Crusades. Yeah. And and I want to say this about the the Crusades. When we talk about the Crusades, a big portion of understanding them is going to require that we understand historical bias. Yeah. Right? That the West is going to have a different perspective of it than the Arab nations. Mm-hmm. We need to keep that in mind. We're going to try to balance it, yeah. Uh, but it's going to be a thing. Um, well, even within Christianity, Protestants are going to have a different perspective of it. That was my second point. Catholics, yeah. Yeah. And and a lot of that's going to come down to the concept of just war theory. Mm-hmm. Do, do Christians at any point have any reason to go to war? Mm-hmm. And if we... And is the land of Israel something that Christians should have or should be fighting for. Those mm-hmm. are those are things that are always going to be an undertone when you discuss the Crusades. Yeah, yeah. So we've spent a couple episodes recently covering significant chunks of time. Um, that is not the case with this episode. This this All of this kind of takes place within uh, a handful of years. Um, and so we're going to be covering uh, as much as we can, uh, of the first crusade, um, which was obviously a significant event. And, and I think just very briefly, just to get people caught up to like, what, what is going on in Europe and the Middle East, just to kind of frame this thing a little bit before we actually get to Pope Urban and Claremont. Yeah. So we've talked about the Carolingian Renaissance. We've talked about how, you know, the French and the Normans are big players in Europe at this, at this point. Um, we know that the Normans recently took England. William took England with the Pope's blessing, I'll mind you, which was which provides some legal precedent for the type of thing that he's going to be calling for in the Crusade. Um, we've seen papal authority just go through the roof. We these divisions between the Eastern and Western Church that we talked about, the existential threat of Islam to Europe. Um, you know, the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantines, had lost significant territory. They they only held a fraction of what they used to. Um, and what's going on within the Islamic world is there's actually a lot of division there as well. So this, the Seljuk Turks, so the kind of the ancestors of those who live in Turkey now, had converted to Islam, and uh, they were excellent horse archers. But the thing is, just like Christianity has its different groups and factions 
The same is true with Islam. So the Turks were Sunnis, but the, the Fatimid Caliphate, which ruled most of Palestine and Syria, were Shia. And what's going on in the Muslim world is there's infighting there mm-hmm. that is happening. That continues today. Yeah, the only, the only reason there was any level of success for the crusade was because of how divided the Islamic world was. And over the years of the Christian crusade, more Muslims died at the hand of other Muslims than by Christian crusaders mm-hmm. because it was such a big world. And what had been kind of this unified juggernaut for so long was no longer the case. Right. So it's complex political things going on in, in both worlds. Um, and Christians were living in these Muslim-controlled lands. And essentially the way it worked was you just paid a tax to not be Muslim. So if you were a Christian, you could live in a Muslim city if you paid special money to not be Muslim. It's kind of a thing. Interesting. It was an interesting thing. And actually, that what, what the Christians do after they take the Middle East is they do the same thing but to the Muslims. They're like, yeah, yeah you're like, that's a brilliant idea. Yeah, you can live here, but just like give us a tax, like pay. And it's a nominal tax. It was, it's... But anyways, um, yeah. And so for a long time, Christians were able to travel to Jerusalem through these lands. But change of regime, new big boss in town, and they say, no, not anymore. Right. And so that for, for, for a medieval church where going to see holy places or going to touch holy things is of supreme importance, that's going to that's gonna create a big problem. Yeah. So I, I think... Today, people enjoy going to the Holy Land. Sure. And seeing the places. Yeah. That's have you a ever, cool, have that's you ever a cool been? thing. I've never been. I've won, I've won, I want to go. I haven't been. But. Yeah. It, it's a cool thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think most people go with the idea of it's a cool thing. Mm-hmm. Most Protestant people. Yeah. And to go get rebaptized in the Jordan River, too, right? They. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Public service announcement. Don't do that. Please. Yeah. Anyway, uh, it was not, these pilgrimages were not just because that's a cool thing, Mm -hmm. right? We're talking about a people who have become very given to the concept of relics Mm -hmm. and an extra presence of God that surrounds people, places, and things. And so thus, in a misguided fashion, the pilgrimage becomes something more for them mm-hmm. thus the importance of the pilgrimage yeah yeah so in 1095 pope urban receives word from the emperor of the east alexios komnenos and he's essentially begging the pope and western europe for military aid against the the turks and the pope agrees and uh, decides to give a famous sermon at the Council of Clermont. 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 Yeah, the, we've already seen the Pope take on, not, not a kingly role, but more of an imperial role mm. in, in smaller ways. Mm-hmm. Pope Urban solidifies that. Oh, yeah. Uh, he very much sees himself as... Dare we say the King of Kings? Um, I know that <laughs> title is taken, and so there's some going to be some uh, some some drawing back from such a statement. 
but essentially that's what an emperor is. Mm-hmm. Uh, he acknowledges that there are other kingships around, uh, but he sees himself in this fashion. And we have already talked. We're no longer in the birth pains of papal authority overstepping. Mm. But at this point, we start like it's reached adolescence. Oh, yeah. And is nearly full grown. Mm-hmm. And so I want to read to you some pretty lengthy excerpts. I'll warn you. Lengthy excerpts from Pope Urban's sermon. Okay. That I think shine really interesting light on how much he believed his authority guided his people. So few points down, he says, concerning this affair, that affair being the fact that the infidel, according to his words, uh, are living in the land of Jerusalem, I, with suppliant uh, prayer, not I, but the Lord, exhort you, heralds of Christ, to persuade all of whatever class both knights and footmen, both rich and poor, in numerous edicts to strive to help expel that wicked race from our Christian lands before it is too late. I speak to those present. I send word to those not here. Moreover, Christ commands it. Christ commands it. (laughs) He is claiming that his words been given to him by Christ. Mm. Remission of sin will be granted for those going thither. If they end a shackled life, either on land or in crossing the sea, or in struggling against the heathen, I, being vested with that gift from God, grant this to those who go. What? Yeah, yeah. That does not sound like Paul. Yeah. Or Peter, if he wants to claim Peter's authority. (laughs) Oh, what shame if a people so despised, degenerate, and enslaved by demons would thus overcome a people endowed with the trust of Almighty God and shining in the name of Christ. Oh, how many evils will be imputed to you by the Lord himself if you do not help those who, like you, profess Christianity. He has not only offered them salvation for going and fighting, guaranteed salvation as is given to him by the Lord, right? but he has also put a curse on everyone who hears this and chooses not to go. Yeah, divine punishment from God if they don't. Let those, he said who are accustomed to wage private wars wastefully, even against believers, go forth against the infidels in a battle worthy to be undertaken now and to be finished in victory. Now let those who until recently existed as plunderers be soldiers of Christ. Now let those who formerly contended against brothers and relations rightly fight barbarians. Interesting. Mm that he would call them barbarians Mm. as they were in kingdoms beforehand thought (laughs) of as barbarians. (laughs) Now let those who recently were hired for a few pieces of silver win their eternal reward. Mm. (laughs) 
Let those who wearied themselves to the detriment of body and soul labor for a twofold honor. Nay, more the sorrowful here will be glad there. The poor here will be rich there, and the enemies of the Lord here will be his friends there. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone in the crowd starts screaming, Deus vult, Deus vult, God wills it, God wills it. <laughs> so, so this was, I mean, there are multiple motives and things and things at play. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously the over, the spiritual overstepping that that goes on throughout that entire speech. I mean, we don't. It's blatantly, you know, it's blatantly obvious. I read, I read that beforehand in preparation for this, and yeah. I still feel like I need a moment <laughs> after a second reading. Yeah, but essentially, like to synthesize that. For, for those who maybe were, I mean, because it's a little slightly archaic language. He's essentially saying, stop killing each other and let's go kill some heathens instead. Right. And and you've been sinning against each other. And the only way to atone for the sins that you've committed against one another is to go slaughter infidels instead. And when you go, you know, doesn't matter. It, it's kind of, it, it's, the, it's the whole fresh start thing, mm-hmm. right? It's like, you know what? It doesn't matter how bad of a person you were. You go, slate wipes clean. Slate, uh, slate is wiped clean, right? And and that was a significant motivation for some of the people who went. There were there were nobles who it was known, you know, they had they were known adulterers and murderers and whatever, and they're like, oh, this is my chance, right? This is my chance, right? And and the reality is, like I think they were mistaken, obviously. But they sincerely believed it. They thought this is what God wants me to do, and this is my only this is my only way out to, you know, to escape the judgment for my sinful life. Yeah. And so it's heartbreaking because they've been deceived into thinking this. But I think a lot of the a lot of the crusaders who went genuinely believed this. And and that's why James tells us not all of you are given to be teachers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because. The measure by which you are judged mm. is greater. And Urban is under some serious heat for this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? His job as a bishop is the protection and the profession of the gospel of Christ. Repent and you will be saved. The free gift of grace. Mm-hmm. And he flips that and says, no, if we give that, it gains us nothing. But instead, we will manipulate people who, in a human mindset, rightfully understand that grace and mercy are unjustified and it doesn't mm-hmm. make sense. Mm-hmm. Earning your favor is the way we work, and so surely it's the way God works. And so if we present to them an opportunity to earn their salvation by doing our bidding, mm-hmm. then it's a win-win. Right. And in fact, it's a lose-lose. Mm. Yeah, totally. And it's all on Urban. Yeah, no, I, for sure. I, I read that, and part of me just wants to laugh that he would say that some of the things he says, but part of me, too, is just crushed. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And I mean, the thing with the Crusades, though, as as we're we have to be we have to be careful that we don't fall into two narratives. One is that the Christian Crusaders are fighting on behalf of Jesus and establishing his kingdom and doing the good work. And this was this was held kind of later into the Middle Ages and and mm-hmm. and, and kind of it's it's romanticized right. and it, you know glorified to some degree. That is that should not be the case. I mean, mm-hmm. you got to do some theological gymnastics <laughs> to justify right. to justify any of this. At the same time, um, the narrative that you know the Europeans were these big bad meanies and they were ganging up on these poor, defenseless, kind, gentle people. Uh, no, <laughs> right. like this, they they had endured hundreds of years of slaughter themselves in their mm-hmm. own lands. So this was this is two groups of people who were spiritually uh, misled right and and the false teaching that they were listening to was encouraging them to uh, slaughter each other and interestingly enough they see each other as exact opposites mm-hmm. enemies spiritually they are preaching the same exact message essentially yeah they are preaching to each other your god as a supreme God, has called you to destroy those believers of a false God. Mm -hmm. They are only barely human. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And their God is the enemy of our God. Mm -hmm. Both teaching the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know if it's to their credit or whatever, but... I guess at least for the Islamic armies, they're at least operating in accordance with what they believe to be scripture. Right. <laughs> right? They're actually following the Quran in doing that. The right. Christians, I mean, Urban is just manipulating things to an unrecognizable degree to in order to, to do this. Right. So so you're right. One is living according to their text. Urban is not reading from his Bible. It's not like even just been pushed aside. He doesn't know where it is. <laughs> yeah. He hasn't even consulted it for a couple of years at yeah. this point if yeah. he's going to be saying some of the things yeah. he's saying. Yeah, and the problem is is that these sides are never going to come to a, a long-lasting, favorable treaty of any kind because both uh, Pope Urban has told the Christians, you don't have to keep vows you make with Muslims. Mm-hmm. And the Quran says you don't have to make keep vows that you make with infidels. So they're not even going to be honest with each other, even when opportunities for peace do arise. So it's just it's destined for bloodshed right. um, from the get go. But but before they can really get their their wheels turning, like it's going to take time to get this thing moving. Words got to spread. Mm-hmm. They got to they got to levy their armies. They've got to gather resources. They got to set their houses in order because they're going to be gone for a while. Right. Um, but not everyone is so patient. And so uh, before the crusade actually begins, there's like a pre-crusade called the People's Crusade that was led by a guy named Peter the Hermit. And Peter was um, a priest, an eccentric speaker. He considered himself a spokesperson for the Pope and for God, although God hadn't hired him and, and actually neither had the Pope. Um, but he thought it anyways. He was a he was a hype man for sure. He got yeah. people riled up. And so he sets Which off, is an interesting skill for a hermit. I know. Yeah, you think <laughs> <laughs> maybe the all that time he spent by himself, he's just like doing like 
you know, public reading up on public speaking. Yeah. 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 Just practicing. Anyways. um, So he sets off with an army of of peasants. There might have been a few actual soldiers, but it was just people who were just like got Mm -hmm. up and were like, we're going to the Holy Land and Peter's going to lead us there. Um, And they just walk through Europe. Um, But they're just an unruly mob. Peter can't control them. And they're like just raiding and looting and killing on their way through Christian lands um, and they actually come into con- like they actually fight battles against the king of Hungary I believe like actual battles uh, because they're just so in a line and there's they're inciting riots and killing Jews in some of these cities and eventually they get to Constantinople and they're such a nuisance that Alexios Komnenos the the emperor of the east he's just like ferries them across the river into Turkey. He's like, just get them out of here. I can't handle these people. They're just, they're just, <laughs> and they get across the river and they're so unruly. They just split up and try to like take food from wherever. And it's just groups of peasants trying to steal from farmers. And so the Seljuk Turks show up with trained elite horse archers and just kill them all. So like immediately. So there's also, not only is there a theological grounds for why people are convinced to do these things, mm. There's also social ground. Mm. One thing that we we have to understand and, and shine light back on, we haven't talked about it in a few weeks. These are the dark ages. Oh, still, yeah. In Europe. For sure. And medieval Europe and the leaps and bounds backward that they have taken have allowed for these things, mm. right? Because illiteracy means theological illiteracy and biblical illiteracy, mm-hmm. right? They don't understand that what Urban is telling them is so grossly wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They also have become extraordinarily superstitious. Oh, yeah. Right? All of, all of the superstitions that we live with and laugh about today like, have their birthplace right. in the middle, middle Ages. Right. Right? And those superstitions allow them to believe in things like, you know, we're just going to get a shining light from an apostle who's going to lead us there. <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to find a magical, you know, grail that is going to grant us life and victory. Or, hey, look, I found this rock, and I believe that this was one of the rocks that was used to stone Stephen and... And so we're going to carry it with us and God will be faithful to us because we have this rock with us. I just made that one up, mm-hmm. but it sounds very much like the kind of thing that they were sharing. And so, so, okay. Are you, are you going to the goose? No, go ahead. Okay. So, so that just that triggered something in my memory that wasn't in my notes, but I learned about mm-hmm. at some point, allegedly <laughs> there is a goose that is um, part of the animals that they're bringing along with them. And the goose, Goose is actually, I guess, is headed east. Is and it le- again. This is apocryphal. So whether this actually happened is is debatable. But apparently, there was a goose that led the people's crusade for a time. This like holy goose that they believed like the spirit of God had inhabited this goose and that it was leading them to the holy land. When really and they I- were on a literal goose chase. <laughs> So, Anyways, sorry. I'm so sorry. here's here's something that I another document that I want to read from. Um, 
and the the reason the reason this is valuable is because we noted at the very beginning of our discussion of the dark ages things didn't darken up so much in the arab world no in the east there was still progress mathematics mm-hmm. uh in particular mm-hmm. um the sciences continued medicine continued mm-hmm. they didn't fall into all kinds of things and so these are accounts real-time accounts not historical accounts mm. a, a journal entry written by an arab man at the time okay um who was helping in medicine in the society not not in its contentious place but in the state that you described earlier where they were sort of intermingled with christians and franks that were living amongst them mm-hmm. and uh his to divide the three people, this it would be like this. That he's Arab, mm-hmm. living in the Arab land. There's a Christian doctor who's going to be a part of the account, mm-hmm. who is living there in that land, but Christian, mm-hmm. not Muslim. Mm-hmm. And a Frankish doctor who comes in, in this sort of crusade mentality, okay. but is trained in the Dark Ages. <laughs> you know what? I think instead of reading it, I'm going to let you read it. Okay, sure. Because I want your responses as you're reading it. Okay. So you see right here? Yeah. Through to okay. that right there. All right. I'll do my best not to stumble over this here. Oh, no, it's good. Among the curiosities of medicine among the Franks, I will tell how the governor of Al-Munatira wrote to my uncle to ask him to send him a doctor who would look after some urgent cases. My uncle chose a Christian doctor named Tabit. He remained absent only ten days and then returned to us. And there was a general exclamation. How rapidly you have cured your patients, Tobit replied. They brought before me a knight with an abscess which had formed in his leg and a woman who was wasting away with a consumptive fever. I applied a little plaster to the knight and his abscesses opened and took a turn for the better. The woman I forbade certain food and improved her condition. It was at this point that a Frankish doctor came up and said, This man is incapable of curing them. Then, turning to the knight, he asked, Which do you prefer, to live with one leg or die with two? I would rather live with one leg, the knight answered. Bring a stalwart knight, said the Frankish doctor, and a sharp hatchet. Knight and hatchet soon appeared. I was present at the scene. The doctor stretched the patient's leg on the block of wood and then said to the knight, Strike off his leg with the hatchet. Take it off at one below. Under my eyes, the knight aimed a violent blow at it with, uh, without cutting through the leg. He aimed another blow at the unfortunate man, as a result of which his marrow came from his leg, and the knight died instantly. As for the woman, the doctor examined her and said, She is a woman in whose head there is a devil who had taken possession of her. Shave off her hair. His prescription was carried out, and like her fellow, she began once again to eat garlic and mustard. Her, consumptive, or her consumption became worse. And the doctor then said, It is because the devil has entered her head. So taking a razor, the doctor cut open her head in the shape of a cross and scraped... Oh, man. Hmm. Sorry, everyone. (laughs) Scraped away the skin in the center so deeply that her very bones were showing. And he then rubbed the head with salt. Ouch. Oh. Oh, Why do you make me read this? (laughs) In her her turn, the woman died instantly. Of course she did. Um, After having asked them whether my services were still required and obtained an answer in the negative, I came back, having learned to know what I had formerly been ignorant of about their medicine. Yeah. So so they're not good at medicine. 
Yeah, so that's just <laughs> that's a look at the way the way life was lived. Mhm. Right? It's brutal. The, the just it, it's brutal, it's crude, it's superstitious. Mhm. And even in their time, the Arabs looked at these practices mm-hmm. in the same way we do, right? And said, what are you talking? What are you doing? Right. Right? Yeah. These people were on the mend. And the doctor, throw up some heavy air quotes, yeah. kills them both Yeah. in horrible deaths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't have space for people that aren't they're like, it was the dark ages. <laughs> it was dark. It was dark. It was very dark. That's dark. It yeah. is dark for two people at least. Yeah. And and that's just that attitude, that ignorance mm-hmm. is, is in part, in great part, how people are so easily persuaded to follow myths and lure into unjustified mm-hmm. wars. Yeah. Yeah. So getting back to that unjustified war... Uh, the actual crusade, <laughs> unlike the People's Crusade, does begin. Um, recruitment, you know, for this coming uh, from all over. Word spreads throughout the duchies and petty kingdoms of, you know, France and Germany and Italy and Flanders. Um, the force is overwhelmingly French and Norman. Mm-hmm. Uh, your England's not doesn't really play a part in this one. They play a huge part in the Third Crusade, but in this one, it's it's mostly French people. Um, and Normans who were essentially just French Vikings. Um, so they're organized into kind of multiple armies. They're combined forces. There's all sorts of estimates that float around, but it's figured they start with at least 10,000 knights and anywhere from 60 to 80,000 infantry. So we're looking at potentially an army of like upwards of 100,000 people or close to that anyways. Yeah. Massive force for the time, like huge. Um, and some of these rulers, like this isn't just like, they're like, oh, we're going to go get some money. Like they're bankrupting themselves to go on crusade. They're like loaning out, like you've got like the Duke of Normandy loaning out his lands or people selling their, their lands to the church or like, or (laughs) like mortgaging their properties just to have the funds to go. Like these people are all into an unhealthy degree. And, uh. And it's officially led by Adamar, who is a, a bishop. Um, and he's kind of sent as the Pope's representative because the Pope isn't going to actually go, himself go to the Holy Land because I don't know, why would he, right? Why would he follow his own advice? That, that wouldn't be very Popish of him. So, uh, but there's all, but so it's led officially by a bishop, but there's a whole long list of, of nobility. Um, I mean, the, some of the important ones are Raymond of Toulouse, Bohemond of Taranto, uh, Hugh of Vermandois, Godfrey of Bouillon, um, and a bunch and a bunch of others, um, and th- a lot of them are related. They they go crusading as a family. It's like a family affair. It's mm-hmm. like sub bros. Let's let's go. You take your kids, your son. He's twelve. He's old enough. He can swing a sword. Let's go to the whole take the holy land. Um, and so yeah, so they they head out, and uh, well, I mean. They do some things on their way over too. I mean, the, the reality is that the Crusaders, their biggest weakness, without question, is logistics. Mm-hmm. They just never brought enough food and never planned for weather or mountains they had to cross or whatever. What Like, they were just 
chronically unprepared. Because, in my opinion, mm. they really believed that they were being divinely sent right. and that they would be mystically provided for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I see that in, in so many of the writings of the time. Right. The, way, the way it talks about how a particular saint is going to lead them or a relic is going to to be their their guide it's also it's not just or their guide or or a goose or a goose <laughs> and and it's not only going to be their their guide in a sort of navigational mm-hmm. means but it's also going to be their provision sure and <sighs> yeah so they they after a while some overland some by sea they arrive in Constantinople and the emperor of the east our good friend Alexios is a little concerned, especially after the whole debacle with the, the mob led by Peter the Hermit. Uh, so he gets them to all swear fealty to him and promise that they're going to give the lands they capture back to the Eastern Roman Empire. Because these the lands that they're going to were initially controlled by the Eastern half of the Roman Empire until they were taken by, um, by the Islamic Caliphate. So they do that. And he actually he gives them some important advice. He, he some really important advice that, that the Franks and the Normans needed to hear. He explains to them what the military tactics of the Turks are and how to fight against them. Um, because here we're seeing two different styles of warfare, right? And so the Seljuk Turks had never experienced anything like Frankish knights before. And Frankish knights had never experienced anything like Seljuk horse archers. And so it would, it's, it's completely different tactics. And so they're going to have to adapt really quickly in order to not get slaughtered. Um, the Turks, they use hit and run tactics. So I don't want to nerd out too much, but just, just give me a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so what they would do is they would come in, fire arrows into, um, into the opposing army, fight a little bit closer hand to hand, and then they would feign a retreat. So they would pretend to be beaten. And they would flee. And what that would do is it would encourage the other army to chase after them, to break ranks and chase after them. And what they would do is they would do that, get the, the other army to break ranks, and then they would turn around backwards in their saddles and just slaughter them with arrows. So that was, that was their go-to move. And so you have to resist the urge to pursue. If you're going to fight against these guys, you have to resist the urge, which is like, Again, for these for these types of guys, which are like just alpha male bros from France, who are also saying, "See, God has led them into our hands." Look, he, our armies flee before us. Yeah, trying to keep them in line and be like, "No, it's not real. It's not a real retreat." Is really really hard. Um, the Normans, I mean, they've just got heavily armored knights that are essentially just tanks. Mm-hmm. N- at this point in history, nothing can withstand a Norman heavy cavalry charge. It is a, it's super hard to set it up because you got to get the right timing, the right spot, the right moment, whatever. But they, the Turks are going to find that out the hard way because when they engage with this army, it's not a bunch of peasants led by a crazy hermit and a goose. And, um, and so the Nor- the Franks aren't very good at medicine, but they are good at war. And mm-hmm. so um, they start taking cities Take Nicaea. Um, that's an important one for him. Obviously, church history. Right. Council of Nicaea. 
right? They're going to come through all these places. And again, for, for Christians, these places have theological, historical, biblical importance, right? So when they, you know, when they come to Tarsus, well, Paul's from Tarsus, or they come to Antioch. Well, hey, that word's in the Bible. Right, exactly. So we have to take it, right? We, have, right. we can't just leave it there. It's, right. a, it's in a Bible story, right? So, I mean, yeah, I mean, we don't have to get into to too much about um, the siege. The one cool thing that happens historically at Nicaea is it's on a lake, and uh, it's not right on the ocean. It's on a lake just like 10 to 15 clicks inside, and they can't get past the walls. And so what they do is they roll their boats on logs from the ocean, like 10 to 15 kilometers to the lake. And then once the defenders see that, they're just like, okay, no, we're done. Like, <laughs> we're, just, we're, done, we're done. You guys want this city more than we want to hold it. So we're just going to, you're going to go through all that trouble. Y'all can just have it. And uh, so I thought that was kind of, that was a kind of a funny, yeah. a funny, funny situation. But that's, that's commitment. Who came up with that idea? Like I, I know that's rhetorical. You don't have to actually know the answer. Yeah, I don't know. But but just to be at a place where you're like, someone's like, hey, boys, too bad we don't have those boats there. Mm-hmm. Someone is like, but we could. We could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. It's I think it's awesome, but uh, yeah. And there's, oh man, I have all this stuff about the di- the various battles, but I just don't know how how important they really are. <laughs> <laughs> the sake of the podcast um yeah but essentially what 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 happens time and time again is because i'll summarize it this way for some of the battles because the the franks and the normans are more heavily armored essentially the arrows the majority of the arrows don't kill them so they can just eat arrows all day long um or just take them in in the shield um and they're fine like it's like getting mm-hmm. punched but not getting not getting killed right and so they're able to overcome significant um disadvantages with numbers and different things like that um in battle because of how they're armored and how they fight most of the soldiers die not from battle but from starvation or from exposure Mm. because the franks and the normans again probably for the reasons you mentioned because they thought deus vult god wills it he's gonna make it happen right right um, they just didn't plan, mm-hmm. right? Like you're going through the desert, like they're going through deserts and over mountains and like, and they're dying of diseases because their bodies aren't used to certain climates and they didn't, they don't know where the water is or if they do get to water, it's poisoned. And it's just, I mean, the slog that like, it's just unfathomable, like how unprepared they were. Or you battle an entire day in full heavy armor mm-hmm. in the desert yeah, rather than fields of Europe. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's totally different. And so they work their way down, but like time and time again, there's just these stories of like some kind of mistake being made or they don't, they choose a different path or they get ambushed or whatever happens, you know, and they take places, they take Antioch um, and they, they work their way down. They get to Jerusalem, but by the time they get to Jerusalem, they've got maybe 10% of the force they set off with. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I look at a map and I'm like, why didn't they just sail there? I'm, I'm not sure why in later crusades, a bunch of them did. So, yeah. so I'm not sure why they didn't do that. But by the time they get to Jerusalem, 
they've got maybe 10% of what they started with. So let's talk about the the shoulds and shouldn'ts. Mm. Let, let's let's evaluate the reasonings for going mm. and talk about them from a distance. Yeah. But as as believers. Mm-hmm. Uh there are a variety of motivating factors. Yeah. Some of them are mercenaries. Mm-hmm. Their war is what they do. They get paid to do it. They're going. Mm-hmm. That's fine. That is its own thing. Sure. Don't need to get into that too much in our discussion. The idea that people are oppressed and God wills that oppressors would cease. Mm. Go. Hmm. Is, is it, it a justifiable motivation? Is it a justifiable motivation? Because here's going to be the thing. There, there are going to be those listening. I, I, because I know, I joke about having one or two listeners. Mm-hmm. I know people listen to the podcast. Mm-hmm. And I know people who listen to the podcast that are right now going, 100% by no means will a Christian ever take up arms. It's that easy. Right. I also know that we have listeners that are going to be like, I was in the military. Right. Yeah. Right? Uh, so there there are going to be those hard sides taken. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I think it's more nuanced than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I think so in this context, so the idea of like oppression is happening and we're seeking to end that oppression. I mean, it can be a noble, a noble thing. I think so... The way I, I'm gonna give I'm gonna give that motivation a bit of the benefit of the doubt, um, although that's maybe not like maybe it's more than than they deserve. The, the Crusaders deserve right, but right, 100%. but but to say that like the way I read a lot of the the Bible's teaching about um, revenge and violence, especially in Jesus' teaching, it to me I read it the context is very personal. Mm-hmm. Someone does something to you. And you don't go to get even. What I also read is that there is it's there is a role for the state, the king, the whatever you want, whatever the nation, to bear the sword. There are justifiable uses for that, whether it's the punishment of criminals or fighting against evil. So I think that can be a justifiable motivation. I think so in certain circumstances. However, oftentimes what ends up happening is you just replace one form of oppression for another. Right. I, I would agree with you on all those points. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I think there is a necessity in standing up for the oppressed that is going to require us to go beyond diplomatic means. Right. Because oppressors require it. Yeah. Right? Is it Um, the most God-glorifying... Would it have been the most God-glorifying thing for the nation of Canada or the nation of the United States of America to say, we're going to just let Hitler do his thing? Right. Is that, like... To me, it doesn't seem that way. But I understand, but I understand and respect that there are some Christians who would say, no. Yeah, sure. Right? And, And this is where the study of history is really valuable for more than just entertainment. Mm-hmm. 
Because here we have the church in historical moment doing these things that we are revisiting now yeah. in Ukraine. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and, and in other avenues around the world, we will continue to have these conversations. Mm-hmm. And so this isn't just about them. We can mm-hmm. use the study of them to cause us to ask questions in our time. Mm-hmm. Are we genuinely seeking to relieve the oppressed? Or are we using the oppression of a people as a means to bring about something that we now have an excuse to come into, right? Right. right. Those those kinds of things are criticisms of these wars, mm-hmm. and and they become a measure for how we gauge mm-hmm. our own wars. And I think I think just to speak to that a little bit, I think we need to be careful and humble even as we evaluate you know things like for example like the crusade because i think it's it's i mean for us it's it seems pretty clear okay things that are happening are so like pope urban's sermon is so against what is revealed to us in the scripture and the actions of these crusaders when they take a city and they're slaughtering innocent people inside the walls they're not just fighting soldiers on the battlefield mm-hmm. they're killing people once they take the town and stealing all their stuff Right. And it's easy for us to look at that and say, like, well, clearly I would never I would never do right. that. I would never be in that situation. It's like, well, maybe you would never do that because you were born in the world that you were born into at the mm-hmm. time that you were born. And maybe a lot of us would be very, very capable of doing those exact same things if we were in a different context. Yeah. And right? and, and I think. I think it can hit even closer to home than that. I, I think mm. we can look at those people who fell for urban speech and say that that is sad, that they had no more understanding of God mm-hmm. and the scripture and the gospel than that. But at the same time, we'll have people who come in and say, hey, you know what? God wills that we get involved in particular wars. Mm-hmm. Right, or the the virtue that we may place on uh, on military service mm. can can get into that divine mm-hmm. or uh, order of God kind of a world, mm-hmm. and and at the same time, not just a not just a self examination for the sake of saying, oh, this is where I'm also wrong, but self examination for growth, right? Right, because sometimes we we come at these things and we're like, oh. I can't believe they're even right now. There's someone listening to this going, I can't believe they're even talking about this. I can't believe they're even giving opportunity for this to be a right thing. Mm. Right. But because they're, you're thinking, well, it's an easy answer, Mm. right? This is always wrong. Mm -hmm. How do you treat remembrance day then? Right. 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 Do, Do you look at vets and say, that person has a scar on their character because they served in the military. Right. Right? Because I'm going to be honest with you, most people aren't going to do that. No. Right? And I, I would say for good reason. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. But the, but that just goes to show you that it's not an easy thing mm-hmm. to say, no, it should never be the case, and I can't even believe you're talking about this. Yeah. Right? Sometimes the reason we have the easy answer and the reason it seems so clear is because we haven't really thought about it. Yeah. We've only thought about it at a surface level and that's an easy place to answer. Mm-hmm. And when you go deeper, it becomes a harder thing. It becomes really messy. And so 
So that one aside, mm-hmm. the idea that the church owes it to God to make sure that Jerusalem and the Middle East are Christian. Yeah. Uh, no. I mean, for me, I, I, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem difficult for me. I mean, I my understanding, uh, you know, uh, is that individual like particular people, places, and things. Pe- people, pe- we are God's people, so we are holy in the sense of being God's people. But the places uh, that are in modern day Israel, um, while they might be interesting to visit as a historical site, they don't retain any kind of spiritual quality or or specialness. So for me, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would still be, so here's the thing though, but at the same time, you know, when there was that church in Quebec that got burned down, was it a year or two ago? Like there's a, there's an element of like, well, that shouldn't happen. Sure. I can get frustrated and angry Mm -hmm. because those are brothers and sisters in their place suffering and they've invested a lot in that building and that means a lot to them and that's what helps them do ministry. So there's a sense in which, you know, you want justice for those people that have been wronged, right? And so, you know, if, well, indeed what was happening is that churches in Jerusalem and the surrounding area were being torn down and destroyed by the Muslims there, right? So there, again, there's a parallel there where initially it's to say, oh, those silly crusaders, why would they care what happened to the Holy Land or why would they care what happened to some some church somewhere? But it's like, again, if we reevaluate it and, and try to apply it to our own context and something that might be a little bit closer to home, then we're suddenly saying, well, hmm, how, how do we actually feel about that, right? Yeah, and and, and I would say if genuinely the call was there is oppression taking place and the oppressed need to be relieved mm. um, then there is the beginnings of the discussion of a justifiable mm-hmm. crusade mm-hmm. Um, is it that Jerusalem belongs to God in a way that Christians need to make sure that Jerusalem is always in the hands of the Christians mm. or the Jews, uh, because that's where God gave to them as a promised land. I, I think there's biblical look at this. Mm. The exile comes from the disobedience of the Jewish people, so God removes them from the land. And then he calls them back for a second chance, mm. at which... God destroys the temple himself Mm. at the hand of the Romans Mm -hmm. in 70 AD Mm -hmm. to end that second time. Um, And the reason I say that, because I understand that's a bold statement. Jesus says, see, your house is left to you desolate. Yeah. And then later says, not one stone on top of another will be remaining. Mm -hmm. And you are going to be saying, blessed are the barren. Mm Mm-hmm in whose wombs never bore, because God himself has said this This is the end of that. Mm-hmm. And that physical land is, is no longer something that he is inhabiting. Um, without, the difference between the first and the second time is the first time always comes with the promise 
of being called back to mm-hmm. the second time doesn't yeah it's almost the way I, the way i see it is this is that the initial exile the, the the nation of israel is given the law as a temporary means to communion with god pointing towards christ so it's not that they're saved through the through the obedience to the law but that is the means by which god is going to be operating in in the nation of israel and they reject that temporary means, and so in response, there is a temporary exile from the land. Mm-hmm. Right. With Christ, with the Messiah, we have the permanent solution of God. Yep. The, the way he's going to dwell with his people permanently, and they reject that one, and so then their exile is permanent, regardless of the, the nation state of Israel today. Um, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing. That Jewish people are like that. That please don't read it that into what I'm saying, um, but it's not the the nation of Israel today is not the nation, the biblical nation of Israel in in my mind. Yeah. So all of this to say, we have a very complicated view of the Crusades. Yeah. What was taking place? Should it have taken place? Those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Let's say that. Memorial has an influx of children, and we are going to start our own school. And that school is going to have a football team. Mm. Because why wouldn't you, (laughs) Stratford? (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Have a school with a football team. And at a meeting, someone stands up and says, I think we should be the Crusaders. What do you say? Probably not. (laughs) <laughs> probably probably not in that definitely not, but I'm going to say probably not because it's the more polite way to I'm, say yeah, it. Yeah, I'm going to be polite and say probably not and just explain that because of the history of the Crusades and us being a Christian organization, it's probably not a wise choice. Yeah, I don't think it's a good link. Yeah. And I see the link a lot. Yeah. Like not, schools are a very common one. Yeah. There I, are a lot of schools that are the Crusaders, but I, I also see it in men's ministry. Right. Christian t-shirts, those kinds of things, right? right? right. And I, I just look to it and I think, you know what? I, I think I think there's an opportunity. Campus crusade? I think it's different. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is it? Okay. They did change their name. <gasps> they did, yeah. Uh, but it was a different kind of crusade. <laughs> I know, I'm just teasing. Uh, when when I when I look to it, I think there's there is a hypothetical argument for a reasonable conversation, mm-hmm. which is a lot of disclaimer. Mm-hmm. In actuality and practice, I would say misguided, it terribly misguided. Yeah, yeah. But you gotta, you gotta, gotta give people context for why. Yeah, that would be the answer, and that's maybe what we're doing today. Maybe if that were to happen, Tim, you just get them to listen to this episode. <laughs> But yeah, no, that's uh, the Crusades were were not ideal. I, I'll just give uh, just to get back to the historical narrative. I'll just give a one minute little of how this all ends because it's going to set sure. up some yep. of the things we talk about in the future. So, the Crusaders do take Jerusalem, um, essentially because a bunch of Italian boats show up and they rip them apart and turn them into siege equipment. <laughs> so, which is kind of a neat thing to do. I mean, it kind of destroyed your ride home, but if you're planning to stay, who cares, right? Um, they enter the city of Jerusalem and massacre the Muslims and Jews in the city. How many? Somewhere between three and 70,000. So we, <laughs> thousands, we don't know how many, but I mean, more than they should have, obviously. Right. Um, and after taking Jerusalem, 
the question of who is going to rule this new kingdom comes up. And there's a guy named Godfrey, Godfrey of Bouillon. He piously says only, only Christ should wear the crown, which probably wasn't genuine because people were so impressed by it. They decided to elect him to be the king. And he graciously took on that honor of king of Jerusalem. How very Absalom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You remember Absalom? If you're going to make me, I guess I'll overthrow my father. Right. So Absalom, <laughs> the son of David. People are complaining about David, and Absalom yeah. is like, I'm not the heir to David's throne. Mm -hmm. uh, so he starts entertaining these complaints mm -hmm. and starts making friends with the complainers. And they're like, you know who should do this is you, Absalom. And he's like, what? <laughs> me? <laughs> Little old me? I never, I never thought of that. <laughs> so we leave off at 1099, year 1099, and there are... Multiple Christian kingdoms, one being the kingdom of Jerusalem, but also Antioch, Tripoli, and Edessa in the Middle East that are being ruled essentially by a bunch of French dudes mm -hmm. with virtually no armies anymore because everyone died behind enemy lines thousands of miles from home. This is not going to end well for them. But for the moment... They are the victorious crusaders, and they must have felt pretty good about themselves, I guess. Yeah, I, I would say at this point, maybe they believe God is delivered, God will sustain. Mm -hmm. um, we'll see. <laughs> no spoilers here. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada, and is produced by Alex Walker. Take care, everybody. See you next time. <laughs>